An article was published last year in the May-June issue of the American Journal of Occupational Therapy titled, Shifting Focus from Impairment to Inclusion, Expanding Occupational Therapy for Neurodivergent Students to Address School Environments, authored by Dr. Yulun Shen and Dr. Christy Patton. It truly excited me to see this call for our profession to go beyond addressing deficit areas in our students and focusing on barriers within school environments that largely remain unaddressed. These barriers include attitudes of peers, teacher awareness of students' social needs and intervention strategies, and school practices and policies about inclusion. It reinforced my belief that we as professionals should start moving away from exclusively focusing on areas of needs to nurturing areas of strengths. This really calls for us to shift from trying to fix our kiddos to finding opportunities for them to be successful. Welcome to Inclusive Occupations, sharing stories of not just being invited to the party, but dancing. I'm your host, Savita Sundar. I'm a school-based occupational therapist. This podcast is a space for OTs and others who work with children and youth in education to be informed, inspired, and empowered to create an inclusive community for the students they serve. person we have on our show today is not only one of the authors of this article I shared with you, but is also the recipient of the highest academic award of the American Occupational Therapy Association, the Eleanor Clark Slagle Lectureship for this year, 2022. I am humbled to be introducing Dr. Christy Patton to our audience today. Dr. Patton is an exemplary OT whose research is focused on using a strengths-based paradigm as well as the perspectives of autistic individuals to understand and impact interventions in public schools for children on the autism spectrum in inclusive settings. Dr. Patton is the principal investigator of the NYU Steinhardt's ASD NEST program, which is an inclusive program for children and adolescents with autism in the New York City Department of Education. She is currently co-PI of an NSF grant entitled IDEAS, which stands for Inventing, Designing, and Engineering on the Autism Spectrum, that leverages STEM interests of middle school students with autism to develop social competence and potential career pathways. Dr. Patton teaches professional and post-professional courses in the area of pediatric intervention, school-based practice and inclusion, and strengths-based approaches for individuals with autism. Dr. Patton has published and presented nationally and internationally on topics related to examining the efficacy of public school interventions and examining autism from a strengths-based or abilities-based model. Welcome, Dr. Patton. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. Sure. I'm happy to be here to talk with you today. So could you share with our audience about your experience working in the school system and how the shift happened for you personally, the shift from focusing on impairment to focusing on participation and inclusion? Sure. Um, Well, I started my career, I worked for one year in a pediatric hospital, then I quickly moved to the schools and did school-based practice and private practice on the side for for years and was very focused on 
um, remediating deficits, specifically in the area of sensory integration, sensory processing, and worked with a whole host of young children, adolescents, adults in this area that was really my specialty as a practitioner and felt that it was really important to focus on these areas and also did a lot of other OT interventions that we typically use to remediate fine motor issues, visual motor issues, visual perceptual issues, which all um, I think are very relevant Um, because I think when you hear the word strength-based practice, the initial reaction from most therapists is like, well, I have to work on areas of need and challenge and it they're absolutely correct mm-hmm. but what that lens doesn't do is see the other side and see the strengths and the shift really happened for me when I was given a grant um, I actually was still working in private practice and was um, also getting my um, master's degree my PhD at Temple University in ma- advanced master's in pediatrics and a PhD then in educational psychology and I we received this grant that allowed us to go around the state of Pennsylvania and interview. We decided with my colleague, Dr. Moya Keneally to interview autistic adults about their experience around sensory processing. So our charge was to, you know, use our expertise and our knowledge around sensory processing and sensory based interventions to develop materials, to train behavioral health providers in short. And And which year was this? It was in the nineties. Okay. It was in the, like the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, had, I graduated as an OT in 87. So I'd been in practice for, you know, a long time focusing on deficits. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we interviewed um, these adults, I really felt like, wow, we are really missing the boat. Um, so many of them had uh, that we presumed to be deficits in so many areas, whether it was communication motor skills, et cetera. Yes, they had challenges, but there were reasons for these challenges that our perspective was missing and also had so many strengths that we weren't even considering because we were so focused on this remediation of deficits. So the interaction with the autistic adults through that grant project was the start of this shift. Mm-hmm. And then as I, as I continued to explore through a research lens, um, through a program lens, um, through my really close work with self-advocates and, you know, going from being a practitioner who treated autistic individuals to being a practitioner and educator and researcher who collaborated with autistic individuals and weren't doing something to them, but were really working with them. It fundamentally shifted my perspective. Um, And, you know, none of us built our lives on our remediated weaknesses, yet we are taught as a profession that's our primary role. And I think if we're looking at quality of life and meaningful participation and well-being, we've got to look beyond our focus on that, those deficits. So it really was this grant project talking authentically with autistic adults about their experience that led me down a path where I just looked for autistic individuals to talk with, work with, collaborate with, and through their lens and a disability uh, justice lens, change my views completely change my views completely that's so powerful the truth kind of just uh, showed up to you as you ventured on this um, project i guess oh 100 (laughs) percent. it really was a 180 and it even got me to a point where um 
I made sure that I told people I was wrong and I made sure I told people I was sorry about uh, some of the interventions. And it, there was a power to that. There was a power and a transparency to realize what your good intentions were, but it wasn't, it wasn't getting, getting, getting people to the point where they could really fully participate in a meaningful life. And we, we kind of all scratch our head and go, we have this K through 12 system where they get a lot of therapy and then we wonder why they don't do well post mm -hmm. K through 12. Mm -hmm. Well, you get what you practice. And if you consistently practice working on what you're not good at, you're never going to be able to develop those areas that really build a meaningful, productive life. Absolutely. And, and this perspective seems to be more talked about recently, but this is something that came to you way back, like 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So the focus of this season of inclusive occupations is to not only raise consciousness among our listeners about the research out there on neurodiversity and inclusion, but to help us see possibilities through stories from exemplars like yourself who have put that research into action in their work. So can you share with us about the ASD NEST project? Sure. The AST Nest Project um, is a program in the New York City Department of Education. So it is a Department of Ed program. NYU and our project that I'm PI of, we're funded through the New York City Department of Education. I have a team of about 14 incredibly talented um, professionals, including autistic professionals, that work to train therapists, OTs, speech therapists, social workers, teachers, principals. It's really a whole school model. It started in 2005. I took it over in 2011. I want to say 2009, maybe 10. <laughs> Sorry, around there. Um, but it's grown from one school to we are over 60 schools in the Department of Ed servicing about 1600 students that are autistic and being educated alongside their 6000 peers. So it's a huge program. I mean, New York City is a big city, obviously, but this this program has spread and it really is about having um, a classroom as a therapeutic vehicle and not having such a medical model of intervention. And it is, it has some core principles. Some of the principles are, we have four students that are autistic um, with eight students in kindergarten that are not autistic and it grows to four students that are autistic to 20 some students that are not autistic in high school. So the not non-autistic population grows. Mm -hmm. But everyone is trained. Everyone is trained on autistic specific practices, um, strength based practices. They hear from autistic advocates. When I took this over, I made sure I brought in autistic advocates so that our OTs, our speech therapists, our teachers were hearing from what we consider the experts themselves to the point now that we have autistic consultants that deliver our professional development. We have a full time autistic um, learning consultant that works with all of our schools to really embed these strength-based practices um, in a meaningful way in these inclusive schools. And so these school climates change. I'll give you an example. We, we had a, a school where um, they did yoga with the, with the NEST students every morning, but because culturally teachers talk, the non-NEST classrooms were like, well, what are you doing? Okay, we'll do yoga there, we'll do yoga it became this entire school model of early morning yoga and movement to help kids set their day. Because we know that these practices that we do with kids with disabilities, everyone benefits from. 
And so, you know, those types of school change and climate, school climate change are really what we're after um, on a big way. And OT has played a really important role in that um, program. So the therapist's focus here shifts on creating a therapeutic classroom environment rather than focusing on individual areas of need. And oftentimes in an environment, in a program that's designed for students with, um, with, with different needs, it often ends up benefiting everyone else in the program. And that's the beauty of inclusion. Correct. Correct. And, yeah. and we, we, we have, um, we have social, we have groups that the students do around social communication, but the teachers are in those groups so that they have an understanding. They're co-run by a speech therapist and an OT a lot of times. Um, so mm -hmm. everyone is, we have case conferencing built in um, and we've worked with the department of ed to have these basic things happen and that are non-negotiable, right? So mm -hmm. OTs are often in systems where they're just treating student after student after student in a very medical model. And there's no time to talk about their students and their case, their case loads and their other professionals so that everyone's on the same page. So we have these structures in place that really help benefit the program. That's amazing. So I'm just curious. So are these ASD nest classrooms or are they the entire school community that has this um, well, nest project? That they well, have? that's the beauty of it. They start, we start off with, let's say two, if we're, if we're taking on a new school, we'll start with two kindergarten classrooms and then kindergarten becomes first grade. Mm -hmm. You still have kindergarten. Then you have kindergarten, first, second, kindergarten, first. So it grows with the schools and it, oh. it becomes a whole school model, you know? And I think um, what's amazing about this, and I think it's because we, we took the time to train everybody. I think the inclusion models where you say, all right, this kid's capable of doing some grade level work. We're going to put him in your class, the one student with a disability, or there are a couple students with disabilities with very different needs. Good luck. And, mm -hmm. we tell them, and then the therapist comes and takes that kid out of the class in order to help, right? And then puts right. them back in class. That model is a horrible model of inclusion. It's geographical inclusion. And it, it I think schools started with us and they were like, well, how are, how are our non-autistic parents gonna feel about having their kids in class with autistic students? We went from, because we train everyone so well and that professional development is such a key piece and we build in these collaborative structures we went from that attitude to parents in communities saying, we want our school to be a nest school. So it, 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 it starts as classes, but it really becomes a whole school, um, a whole school movement. Wow, that is, that is amazing. That is amazing. So, um, okay, so one of your studies um, found that autistic adolescents interacted more with their autistic than their non-autistic peers. And mm -hmm. the non-autistic teens interacted better with their own neurotype than with their autistic peers. Can mm -hmm. you elaborate on that study? I mean, do you see this to be true from what you see in practice or was it just something that came out of this study? What have you heard from autistic adults? And also um, in your interest-based after-school inclusive clubs, do the autistic similarity trump shared interest when it comes to social interaction? Great questions, great questions. Um, so this, this study uh, they're referring to came out of my, my lab and we have an NSF grant. It's through, through the Ideas Project. And I have a, she's now a postdoctoral, postdoc at Kessler Foundation, but um, Dr. Yulun Chen, my former PhD student, 
This was part of her dissertation work. Um, and it was it, it, basically what we found in our middle school clubs, which like you said, autistic to autistic, non-autistic to non-autistic, um, really, really confirmed a very popular um, theory called the double empathy theory that was put forth by Damien Milton, who's in England and he is an autistic researcher. And essentially the double empathy problem. So it wasn't like we were finding a new, new thing that no one had ever heard of. The double empathy problem has been out there, has been uh, such a interesting lens to look at social communication and autism. And it basically says, it's not a one-way problem. It's not a theory of mind problem that, uh, because we know theory of mind and autism has been completely debunked. It's, it's not, it's not something that, um, it's something that should be questioned if we're just looking at autistic individuals not having theory of mind, that's no longer mm -hmm. a valid scientific uh, perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that the double empathy theory problem states is that we each have difficulty understanding someone else's perspective who is not like us, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. so, so yes, autistic individuals have difficulty understanding non-autistic um, non-autistic individuals' theory of mind, their perspective taking. And that's where all the studies have gone and, gone and shown time after time that this autistic student has difficulty understanding that perspective. Well, guess what? The non-autistic individual or the neurotypical peer has just as much difficulty understanding the autistic perspective and how that autistic individual thinks and how they perceive the situation. So it really is this double empathy problem on both sides, okay? Mm -hmm. so that's, kind of, that's the theoretical rationale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what studies are showing, um, and our study, our study was the first to do this with middle school, the studies out there have supported this double empathy um, problem and theory at the adult level. We did it in a real world setting with our middle school students and found the exact same thing. Okay. Wow. Uh -huh. So we were confirming that this is the case in our study. And, I'll, and so what we found in these clubs is that um, shared interests were important. And you, the second part of your question, does one trump the other, does shared interest or this double empathy, which one is more important, neurotype? Mm -hmm. They're equally important because shared interests motivate me to be in this club, right? Mm -hmm. I'm interested in making, I, if I am if very focused on presidents of the United States and I can 3D print a president in a maker club, that's meeting my interest, which is mm -hmm. a true story. We had kids that do that. Um, <laughs> And so the shared interests bring me there, but there is a system of communication and social communication. When someone is very similar to you, mm -hmm. they get you, they get your shortcuts, they get your language um, that held up in our study. So, um, and it, it's, which, which, which helps us view our model of inclusion, how wrong that is. If I can communicate better with my autistic peers, um, and I'm the only person with autism in an inclusive class, you can see how that produces difficulty, right? So mm -hmm. it lends itself to us being really truly more inclusive so that different, different individuals that have different ways of processing and neurotypes, neurotypes have a way to connect over shared interest and over how they communicate. Because if autism is a social communication deficit, which is one of the hallmarks of the DSM, Mm -hmm. It is a social communication deficit, but it's a social communication deficit 
from me as non-autistic to someone that's autistic because we're not really connecting. If it was truly a social communication deficit, we would see that with autistic to autistic communication. They would have difficulty as well, and they don't. You know, I'm reminded of um, the Neurotribes book by Steve Silberman, and um, he talks about how he went to this conference that was held in a cruise with all these um, autistic or all these computer engineers who were programming, and, and it just seemed like they were in total harmony and there was no issue at all with any communication or um, any of the so-called deficits that we label them with right when they were all together so this is exactly what you found in your study too mm -hmm. exactly well and because we're a profession we're a profession that works with individuals that are autistic that says to be successful you have to communicate more like me and act more like me mm -hmm. and autistic self-advocates are saying no i don't i actually when i find my tribe and i find my people i i communicate fine I need help with anxiety. I need help with my sleep issues. I need help with, you know, I need help with the, the sensory issues that, and how to manage that and how to advocate for myself in those spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, 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 I think it's the perspective we've got to start looking more critically at as, as OTs, because mm -hmm. I think it's, it, and, and not just as OTs, but there's groups of, um, kind of speech and language pathologists that are looking at neurodiversity OTs. And why are we looking at neurodiversity now as professionals? Because we're realizing we're not serving those that we serve um, in a way that values who they are as individuals versus wanting to change who they are as individuals. Right. So we OTs and educators are battling to meet the requirements of an age-old system that obviously views disability predominantly from a medical lens than the social lens, right? And, and, and nearly 25% nearly of OTs work in the schools. We, we know better than we did, yet our practice remains pretty old fashioned, right? And we're battling so many day-to-day -day challenges and issues, deadlines, um, jobs to keep, funding concerns, so many different things right mm -hmm. you you know about her school-based practice and mm -hmm. you know how it is right so yes. what would you say is the best place to begin the shift where do we begin to implement change in our service delivery in schools my hope is that um, the ideas you have shared will drive us a little bit further into action in the right direction you know there's a there's a um author dolly chug is her name c-h-u-g-h um and she writes about bias and and really kind of addressing bias and we have a professional bias that oh this is how it's going to be because this is how it always is mm -hmm. and she talks about doing some doing doing not changing the whole system not looking at it and saying wow the whole system has to change which it does but do do something that's 10 percent terrifying and by 10% terrifying, you know, it, it may just mean going to that IEP meeting and, and, and saying, you know, we have all of this, this, this individual's deficits and what they need to work on. We don't seem to have a lot of strengths. Can we explore that more of what the strengths are? Because if you look at our documentation in schools, whether it's an IEP or an evaluation, we have one line for strengths and then the rest of the report is about what they can't do, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe 10% terrifying is challenging that documentation mm. or challenging how that IEP is written and saying, 
what if we had a goal that is purely aspirational of what this kid wants to do that is not related to fixing a weakness? I love it. That is, that just seems so doable. And, you know, um, also seeing it a different way. You know, James Baldwin is, who's a real notable activist and author. Um, he did an interview in the seventies, I think. And he, he talked about, and obviously he was focused on civil rights and, and advocating for civil rights very strongly in a, in a system that was very biased. But he talked about how the world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter the way you see the world, even by a millimeter, mm -hmm. um, as far as how you look at a person or people look at reality, then you can change it. So it's less than 10%. It's a millimeter, right? Yeah. So if we, start, if we start looking at people um, and those that we serve in a fundamentally different way and say, why do I always, why is my default setting seeing all deficits? Well, because that's how we were trained, right? <laughs> we, right. We, were trained, we were trained well. But if, if you start to say, can I just alter it? And every kid that I see in the schools think about what is his strength? The, my, the kids that I work with it with ADHD, wow, they have such a capacity for novelty. How can I use that? Mm -hmm. You know, just starting to change it by a millimeter. By a millimeter. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think this is a very, very um, actionable suggestion that you have shared with us. Even a small shift, like a millimeter shift in the way we view things can have an impact and we can take our first steps there just asking simple questions why am i doing this why not so um my next question for you is i'd like to know what your perspective is about the least what is considered as least restrictive environment um i know that in the asd nest project students are exclusively autistic they don't have coexisting intellectual disabilities. So for students who have extensive support needs, what would you consider as the least restrictive environment? Do you think self-contained classrooms should exist? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that I, I don't. And I've changed my mind over the years about this. Um, I used to, and I've worked at schools that were Prior to, I, I've worked at schools that were completely segregated when I when I first started when I first got out and practiced and worked at intensive learning centers that just had kids with disabilities, and and here's what happens if we if we say you know what though but their needs are so high um, we need to have a separate setting, um, and you can program differently, but I also think it it takes the it takes the focus off of how do we build an inclusive society, you know, where we, we see kids in every walk of life, in every classroom and every, and, and, we, and we are okay with that. Now what happens is we have whole systems of interventions so that when a kid with higher support needs is out at the grocery store, he doesn't flap in order not to upset other customers in the grocery store. Right. Because we've segregated these settings or we have institutional settings that have said, OK, the kids with the highest support needs need to go here. And so what that does is it doesn't give us a picture of of how autism presents itself in so many different ways. And it being OK if a kid flaps in the grocery store. 
because maybe I'm really excited to be at the grocery store or maybe I'm flapping because that helps me calm down in order to get through the grocery store. And honoring those ways of being um, ha will happen less and less the more we say you need a self-contained setting, you need to be away, from, you know? And I, I think that our models are such that we, we they're, they're for a reason and with good intention and to do more intensive programming Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there, and, and I don't have the answer. I really don't have the answer, but I know that the individuals that I have worked with that have high support needs that have, that have a way to communicate, that type to communicate or use mm -hmm. augmentative communication to communicate are not saying, keep me in that segregated setting. And, and, and so those are the voices I prioritize. I don't have the answer as to how best to do that. But if we prioritize that voice, it'll lead us to the answer. Thank you so much. That's, um, yeah, I mean, a classroom, our school community is a microcosm of our society. And our society involves, includes people of all kinds, diversity. So Right. And if our school community has a system that says, this class is farther away from everybody. Mm -hmm. It's down in the basement. It has a lot of adults to help. Doesn't, you know, doesn't really um, maybe empower like two highly qualified teachers, but relies on more paraprofessionals, which is fine. But you also have to remember that in the system, the paraprofessionals who can be excellent, don't get me wrong, can be mm -hmm. excellent, also have the least amount of training. Right. And, and so how do we pull people from the margins into more um, the central life of the school. Right. You know? And, and I, I do think that adults that have been through these systems, these segregated systems, these um, self-contained systems that now are advocates, we should be listening to them for the answers. We should be listening to them as to what would be, help, what would be helpful. You know? And I think that their voice could be incredibly powerful around self-contained classes. So true. So true. You yes. may have just given me my idea for a next paper. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, 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 and the expectation is you need to behave like the rest of us in order for you to belong with the rest of us. Because you don't behave like the rest of us, we segregate you into these classrooms where you can be yourself, but not here. That's exactly. kind of the message we are giving. We are giving that message every single day. And it's also a fallacy. I call it um, a fallacy of readiness. You yep. know, and that fallacy of readiness is you have to act like me in order to be ready to be in this situation versus what if I put you in this situation, knowing your strengths mm -hmm. and knowing what you're interested in and knowing what motivates you. And then let's see what happens you know, versus earning your way into a system that wants to exclude you. Mm -hmm. You know, it, so yeah. it, we've really got, I think, be critical in, in our questions about this. Yeah, yeah. This is such valuable insight, you know, the, the fallacy of readiness, you know, you need to learn how to behave so you can be in a genet classroom, right? We say that, that we justify all the time, not, you know, not including them with that. And I have a quick story. Do I have time to tell a quick story? Yes, yes, please. <laughs> um, 
a young man that had high support needs um, was told, his parent was told that he was really having difficulty with vocational, pre-vocational skills, wasn't ever going to get a job, wasn't behaving appropriately to get a, a, a job with, and the job coach was saying, yes, he's, he, he's not doing this, 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 this. I talked to the parent. I knew this kid loved baseball, loved baseball statistics. And um, I said, you've got to know someone with this major league sports team. Like, do you know anyone? Can you get him an interview there? They're like, well, she's like, well, he'll never do well on an interview. And it's, that's the fallacy of readiness, right? Mm-hmm. He'll never do well in the interview. Um, I said, just trust me, go with what, go with what interests him. And she did to her credit. And she was shocked at the young man she saw interviewing for this job. Shocked. Hmm. He had eye contact. He had good pre-vocational behaviors, you know, um, that were, were dramatically different than what, what she was being told. And he ended up getting hired by that organization to work on the trivia, which he knew very, very well. But if we, if we hold it to, no, you ha- you're not ready to do that, that opportunity would have been completely missed. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of our sweet spot, right? That we would say that's me- a meaningful occupation for him. Yeah, yeah. Why are we why are we shutting the gate in order to get to a meaningful occupation versus let's put meaningful occupation first mm-hmm. and then see what we need to work on. Mm-hmm. So true. Very, very nice, very nice story. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. So if you were to leave us OTs in schools and other educators and related service providers with your final words of wisdom, what would that be? Oh wow, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Um, not that I have a lot of words of wisdom, but there's, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I I would say one of the most important things to remember is that we do not build our lives on remediated weaknesses. No one builds their life on remediated weaknesses. So when you're in a system or you've learned as a professional that remediated weaknesses is your focus there, there's something missing there. You can focus on looking at challenges and remediating weaknesses. But if that is your sole focus, you are not helping that individual build a meaningful life. So what would a meaningful life look like to you? And I would imagine it wouldn't be a focus on your weaknesses. It would be, hey, I wanna get better at this, help me, A, or B, and at the same time, B, I'm really good at this, give me opportunities to shine. You know, and how can we as OTs blend those two things together where it's very client-centered, goal-driven based on what the individual student wants to be able to do coupled with, and the, to focus on those areas of challenge coupled with really building up my aspirational goals. You know, and I, I think if we can remember that and then go do 10%, something more terrifying in your systems that you work in, that looks at kind of the intersectionality, the systemic biases against uh, uh, kids with disabilities. Um, I think those would be the, the two main thoughts that, that, I, that, I would, that I would leave with your audience. Um, and we should be questioning. We should be, we should be questioning things. We should be questioning systems. And I think we get into a habit of, well, that's how it's done. That's how it's always done. Um, you know, Again, if you can if you can be creative and think out of the box, we're not 
trapped in a system that will never change. Because if you look historically, systems have changed dramatically. Right. And, and we are the ones who can change it. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Christy. This was uh, a wonderful, wonderful interview. And um, yeah, and I think you're going to impact a lot of people who listen to this. Well, thank you. Thank you for spending time with me and you had great questions and um, look forward to sharing with your audience. Mm-hmm.